Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. And then we get a list of the different people groups that are inhabited, that were there in the promised land at, the t- at that time. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and Jebusites. As the Lord God has commanded you, completely destroy these people. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. So, how do we respond to these passages of Scripture and more specifically this directive? So, I want to put on the table three responses for your consideration. And I will acknowledge right up front uh, that given the nature of the question, the responses will probably not satisfy all within this room. And then also, the responses will be at best partial. I have basically about 25 minutes to address this. There's more that could be said, but at least here are three responses as a beginning point. So, one. Statement number one. This is an expression of judgment in response to the wickedness. The exceedingly great wickedness of the people in the promised land. I invite you to read another couple of passages of Scripture with me. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account, and this is the clearest statement that we have in this book of Deuteronomy as to why God is saying this, but, and it appears a number of times, no, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness on your, or your integrity that you're going to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So, fair question would be, what was their wickedness? What did they do that would deserve this kind of a response from God himself? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 and following. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways. And that word is used quite frequently, even in these few verses we're reading right here and through the book of Deuteronomy, that some of this wickedness is referred to as detestable in the eyes of God. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire. You heard right. Part of the language here and part of the wickedness of this group of people, those who inhabited the promised land, is the sacrificing of their sons or daughters in the fire. Who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead, suggesting that there's a connection here with these 
detestable practices and a connection with demonic engagement at the same time. So not sure what came first. Was it some kind of engagement in the demonic world, which would have been real but would not have been right, but engagement in the demonic world that then suggested to them in different ways the sacrifice of the infants around them. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So the wickedness included, obviously, as indicated here, the, if, you, if we could believe this, it seems so strange and foreign to us, but documented in different ways. This is a reality that happened in that parcel of land, the sacrificing of infants and children. The scripture picks it up again in a couple of places. In Deuteronomy 12, 31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. So you get this language of the Lord hating these practices, and understandably so. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And again, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10. Moloch was the name of the Canaanite deity that represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with a full hope, a human body in whose belly a fire was stoked and then in whose outstretched arms human sacrifices were placed. God responds to that. Leviticus 18.21 Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so God comes along with Moses and then with Joshua as well, and then he directs these people, these children of Israel, the children of Israel were to eradicate, I think that would be a fair word, to eradicate this evil from the land Lest in time they themselves, the children of Israel, would be trapped by the same evil and the same wickedness. Now, it is interesting that years later that Solomon, influenced by some of his foreign wives, followed Moloch, this very God. Now, I didn't really look closely, and I don't recall any passage related to Solomon with his foreign wives where there were human sacrifices, but nonetheless, in that passage in 1 Kings 5, Malik is referred to as that detestable God of the Ammonites. So their wickedness included this human sacrifice. And given the Deuteronomy 18 passage, which we read moments ago, again, I would suggest that there was a connectedness with this demonic world between their evil practices of human sacrifices and demonic engagement at the same time, which included witchcraft, which included sorcery, the casting of spells, the consulting of the dead, to what end, possibly to this matter again, the sacrificing of human life. When I hear that, I can understand why that would, why God would, I might understand a little bit better why God would respond as he did in terms of the evil within the land. There's another point of sinfulness that we would mention. I mean, I'm uncomfortable in stepping into this sort of stuff, and you're probably uncomfortable in hearing, but here's yet another uncomfortable one that was characteristic of that land and comes through in some of the literature of that day and age. 
The wickedness also included sexual perversity, such as having sex with animals. So we get this explicit word in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 23 and following. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. So there's a comment there about the people in the promised land, the Canaanites and all of the Jebusites and this list of people that were there, that that was one of the practices that was happening within the land at the same time. So that so much, then later in the book of Deuteronomy, when you get this calling out of curses and blessings, you get this statement that says, curse is anyone who has sexual relations with any any animal. I mean, that is so foreign to our thinking, so foreign to our society, so foreign to our world, but yet that became part of the practice that was there, this sexual perversity that was there. And obviously, God's responding with, pleasure about these sexual perversities. So how should we understand God's directive to destroy and to drive out these people? As explicitly stated in the text, we should understand, at least I would suggest we understand this as an expression of judgment in response to the exceedingly great wickedness of the people in the promised land. And that when wickedness reaches a certain measure and where God's patience has been fully exhausted, Judgment comes. God did it with the flood, though he indicated that he would never again use the flood, but his patience was taxed. It was finished. And interestingly, later on, he would exercise judgment against the people of God, Israel themselves, that these people, with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, is a key example. Why? Because of their exceedingly great wickedness with disregard of repeated calls to repent and turn back to God. So not only do you have it happening with the people in the promised land, but that many years later now you have it happening with the children of Israel because of their exceedingly great wickedness and disregard to acknowledge God and to walk with Him. So two words to summarize this first statement and the first response is God judges. God judges. And as a student of Scripture, I see that message from Genesis to Revelation. The reality is the last page of the Bible speaks about judgment as well. The last book of the Bible speaks exceedingly of judgment and of the failure on those to repent and turn to God and the wickedness that is therein if someone defies God with that sort of spirit through his or her life. So God judges. Now, before we shift to the second response, an additional observation which will help us to transition into uh, number two is an observation. With the judgment and this call to destroy, um, at times I'm puzzled by the language of Deuteronomy. As I read through it, and I'm looking for all these passages about destroy, Virtually everywhere where you get this language about destroy. At the same time, coupled in at this, with, the, with that same language, is the language of driving them out. 
And so I am sort of puzzled. Uh, what is it, God? Do you want these children of Israel to destroy all of them? Or do you want to destroy them or drive them out? Which one is it? And I got the sense that when I was looking at this passage, these passages of Scripture, it's kind of like the, the, inclina- the desire... God is calling for the destruction of these people because of their wickedness. But because of his graciousness and because of his patience and because of his reluctance to move in that direction, the language gets mixed up with driving them out. Now, driving out people, displacement isn't a great place to be, but if you consider that the lesser of two evils and being destroyed, then maybe it does reflect the grace of God and the patience of God to a certain extent. Which takes us to statement number two. Number two, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Prompting an amazing patience on the part of God. Exercising judgment only after a prolonged opportunity for repentance. So some of the passages of Scripture related to this from the Bible as a whole. Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I believe that. I believe that wherever we see the expression of judgment in Scripture, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or Psalm 73, 38, time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full anger. So again, you have this language of destruction and, 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 and driving him out was was there, you know, this, this, this full anger and the full wrath, but then he pulled it back. And rather than destroy, we're going to drive out these people rather than totally annihilate them. Now, here's an illustration. I want to give you an illustration. You'll need to follow closely along with this, but this is uh, a significant piece tied in with the promised land story. It's a story that happened in Canaan, the promised land. It's an illustration of the patience with the people who inhabited the promised land, comes from God's interaction with Abraham some 400 plus years before what we see here in the book of Deuteronomy. So I'll read the text, and the last line is a really critical one, and I'll bring that to your attention. And it reflects, in my judgment, the phenomenal, the amazing patience of God and the restraint of God till it gets to a point where... His wrath is finished. His God needs to be expressed because the, the, the wickedness is so full. Genesis 15, 12 to 16. As the sun was setting, Abram, again, this is four or five hundred years before, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, so this is a prophetic revelation by way of a dream. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there in Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve, that's slaves, that's in Egypt, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land, to Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites 
has not, or the sin of the Canaanites has not yet reached its full measure. And this is a prophetic revelation to Abraham about 400 years plus before this. It's the giving of the command to Moses and Joshua, uh, before the giving of the command to Moses and Joshua to destroy or drive out the Canaanites. So this prophetic revelation is revealed before the time of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and then even before Moses. Here's the line. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. But not before. Why? For the sin of the Amorites, the Canaanites, those in the promised land, has not yet reached its full measure. And the question it raises for me is, did God hold back moving the children of Israel from Egypt back to the promised land, largely because of his patience with the Canaanites? The text seems to suggest that. Their sin had not yet reached its full measure. And God, in his sovereignty, knew that the fullness of the Canaanite evil would come to a point that would eventually call for judgment. But before that, patience. Incredible patience. Waiting. Holding off and moving the children of Israel out of Egypt. Because he didn't want to bring judgment prematurely upon the Canaanites that were there. So my two words to summarize this response, God waits. God waits. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So he waits, he waits, he waits. That would be the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The mystery may not be that a holy God judges wicked people. The the real mystery may be that he tolerates and he waits so long. But he waits. He waits. And then the third response. uh, God includes all of humanity. The reason I'm making this statement is because some of the critics of what we see in the book of Deuteronomy will say that, is God racist? He's for the children of Israel, but he doesn't give a darn about the people that are there. Out they go. These Canaanites. And so the, the, the charge that's leveled against God is, 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 is he racist? And there's only people that are, a certain group of people that are special. The others, not so. God includes all of humanity. In Deuteronomy, this very book that we're looking at, Deuteronomy 10, verses 18 and 19. So, you know, you get pulled your emotions this way, and then you get pulled your emotions the other way to bring some balance to it. But he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And so you, the children of Israel, are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Or Deuteronomy 27, 19, Cursed is anyone with who, who withholds justice from the foreigner. Or it's consistent with the spirit of Genesis chapter 12, 2 and 3. This word to Abram, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see the compassion of God, Jesus in the New Testament. So there you have Jesus with this Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, and he affects healing for her with his spirit of compassion. 
And then we get to the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, 9. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then when we look at the cross, which is implied by, obviously suggested by Revelation 5, 9, the cross is a statement of grace, of forgiveness, of inclusion. His outstretched arms on the cross express an invitation to the world. And that same posture continues to today as well for all humanity. God includes. The invitation is open to all humanity. It's open to the Jewish people in modern-day Israel. It's open to the Palestinians in modern-day Israel or in the Palestinian territories. It's open to the Pakistani people. It's open to the people of Russia. It's open to all Canadians. The invitation is open to all to be included in that kingdom of God. The people in the promised land, I am persuaded, could have avoided this by repenting and acknowledging God and a lifestyle that was appropriate. But uh, in the absence of that, in the absence of repentance, and the absence of confession, the judgment of God came. So three responses. God judges, God waits, and God includes with, uh, at its, as well too. So every sermon needs to have a so what? So, so what with what you've heard? I'd like to suggest the so what might be Psalm 90 for you. Uh, Psalm 90 uh, may well have been written by Moses. Uh, and the only psalm that we, it gives indication that might have been written by him. The story about Moses was that he was not able to enter the promised land. Uh, could only look at it from Mount Nebo on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And that, the reason for that was because of the judgment of God on his life uh, for failing to treat God holy. So the irony of all ironies, so he is to take this director from God and there to be involved, him and Joshua, in destroying these people. But Moses, his own life is taken prematurely. It says there in those final chapters of Deuteronomy that he still had a great deal of strength. But his life was, because of a certain judgment on his own life, was taken early as well. Now, he saw the promised land from Mount Nebo, and it could be argued as well when we read about the transfiguration experience that Moses ended up in heaven, and he continues to see the promised land today as well. And we could be of that persuasion. But it doesn't say in Psalm 90 that Moses wrote that psalm uh, in the context of these experiences right here. But it's possible. It's possible. Moses, maybe at the end of his life, reflecting on his life, particularly on some of the painful aspects, because Psalm 90 is not one of those psalms that you're immediately drawn to. There's, There's pain. There's sorrow. There's darkness. There's trouble. And so is Moses reflecting on his life, some of the painful aspects of it in Psalm 90. The so what of the sermon may well be, if this is the case, uh, his own response. And one of the key lines in that is, with what we've heard today, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
the psalm reminds us of the brevity of life. I mean, there's all kinds of death. There's all kinds of blood splattered all around the pages of Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. Remind us of the brevity of life. Remind us, O oh God, to fear you. Remind us to know the power of not only your love, but also that which comes through Scripture, the anger of God as well. Remind us of the forgiveness in Christ as well. Remind us of our own missional calling too. But remind us, remind us to truly have a heart of wisdom taking into consideration all that's revealed in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, Deuteronomy included as well. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Lord God, we pause and we conclude this this teaching time with just acknowledging you as God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, take these texts that we've looked at and provide us, O God, with added wisdom, added perspective, and added implications just in terms of then, well, how then should we live in our own world because of what is reflected through the book of Deuteronomy and through Psalm 90. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.